Welcome back to Career Corner. I'm your host, Jonathan Mars. In episode four, I chat with Pablo Dominguez, operating partner at Insight Partners, which is a private equity venture capital firm. Pablo is a go-to-market executive with experience in leading and transforming global teams, specializing in sales and customer success. He's also worked at Avaya, ADP, the Alexander Group, and AppNexus. Born in Mexico and raised in the Lone Star State, Pablo received his Bachelor of Business Administration from Texas in Management Information Systems and International Economics. He also received his MBA from the Stern School of Business at NYU. Pablo is an absolute legend, and we discussed the following in our conversation. Working with recruiters, building a team from ground zero, his A plus B plus C plus D leadership philosophy, the Disney magic of customer success, the importance of having fun at work, getting to the so what when managing up. Please enjoy this conversation with Pablo Dominguez. Pablo Dominguez, welcome to Career Corner. It's great to see you, man. Thanks, Jay Mars. Awesome to be here. Right now, Pablo, I know you've been at Insight Partners for a couple of years. You're the operating partner for sales and customer success there. I wanted to start with sort of how you got there and sort of what you're up to today. So we work together at AppNexus. At your level, can you sort of shed a little light into your thought process on why you went there, the interview process? What, what did that look like? And then maybe back into what you guys are up to today over there. Yeah, absolutely. Great question. So as you know, um, you know, Nexus got bought by AT&T, right? And um, the timing couldn't have been more perfect. Um, I knew that uh, I wanted to go and do something else uh, as soon as the transaction happened. And a recruiter reached out on LinkedIn. And believe it or not, my last three jobs I've uh, gotten because somebody reached out to me on LinkedIn cold uh, and said there was an opportunity uh, to join a private equity VC firm here in Manhattan, um, you know, running sales at the time because I just picked up customer success. And uh, it was everything I sort of wanted to do, right? So I've spent the, my entire career really working uh, with sales leaders uh, in public companies and consulting and in a startup, as you know. And uh, yeah, this is a great opportunity to try something different. My predecessor, uh, who came from Bain, uh, you know, left to become the COO at one of our portfolio companies and left that role, uh, you know, open for myself and others to, to interview for. And he's now CEO at one of our portfolio companies. So, yeah, it was it was perfect timing in terms of uh, when we got bought and when the opportunity opened up. That's really interesting. Do you do you have an opinion on recruiters? In this case, it sounds like they're very helpful. How have you interacted with them or not throughout your career? Yeah. So the recruiter actually that reached out um, was amazing. Um, I mean, she shared sort of what, you know, what they were looking for. And, you know, now in my role, I use recruiters a lot, but um, the relationship that we had um, was great, not only from, you know, teaching me about what insight was looking for, but then as I actually started the interview process and continued to progress, um, helping to guide me through, the different personalities, what they're looking for, um, again, coaching you. Um, I think once they realize, hey, you're a viable candidate, they also want you to be successful, right? So um, it's not just a, hey, go through the interview process and it's over, but um, here's who you're talking to, here's what's important. Um, and I actually learned a lot through that process because now as we interview people for our team, right, that we're trying to hire, as we put them through the interview process, um, I've taken that same approach to make sure that they know, hey, you know, you're talking to my boss and here's what's important to her or, 
my peers value these things. And so make sure you touch on this. Right. And so um, I really appreciated that uh, angle from them. Hey, Pablo, can you talk a little bit about your role at the company and for those who might not be familiar with Insight Partners, what you all do? Yeah, absolutely. So Insight Partners um, is a private equity venture capital firm um, that's been around for 25 years. Uh, They only invest in uh, B2B uh, software companies, right? So we're not investing in flying cars or or that sort of thing. So a lot of expertise in 25 years investing in software um, or recurring businesses. And um, it's awesome. They have the expertise on the investment side. Um, We have some of the best leaders in the industry that understand sort of the market um, and what it takes to be successful in the software space. And what makes Insight unique as well is um, we focus on growth investments, right? So we're not doing restructurings and turnarounds. We're focusing on scale-up companies. So we look at things in terms of their startups that are very early on in their career. There are scale-ups that now need help getting to that next phase, right? As they turn into grown-ups and um, you know go into the the latter stages of of growth, becoming public, etc. And so we really focus on that um, the scale-up uh, community. And so. Um, again, what makes us unique is there is the investment side, which is amazing. And then there's the operating side, which is called onsite. And so, you know, my boss, Hillary Gosher runs the onsite team. And so we're basically structured no different than a company, right? We have functional teams that focus on product and tech, on talent, on marketing, sales and customer success, business development, um, strategy and analytics. And each of those teams pair up with um, the functional leaders at our portfolio companies to help them scale um, as we advise them throughout the journey of their life, right? So we're involved early on in the diligence process, which is as the investors are evaluating, hey, should we invest in this company? Um, and does that company want to take Insights money, right? Because they could take our money, they could take another investing uh, firm's money or a bank. Um, so we're trying to, you know, it's like dating, right? You're trying to figure out are they a match for us uh, and are we a match for them? And then once they become part of the insight portfolio, it's really about how do we as the operating team help them scale to the next level, right? And what I love about it is it's a little different than consulting, where in consulting, you would come in and out, right? You're in an engagement, uh, you do some work and you leave, and sometimes you're not sure, hey, did they did they take some of the recommendations or I may not see them ever again. And here, what's amazing is that we're with the companies. Um, through their journey, right? We're here to see them succeed from the initial investment until some sort of exit event, whether that's uh, an IPO um, or a sale. Um, It's really exciting. That's great. And I know that you, wherever you've worked, it seems like you build this really incredible culture of teams that work really hard. They have a lot of fun and they drive results. And I know you definitely bring your most authentic self to work. And it seems like when you moved over to Insight Partners, you you built a culture from the bottom up. Can you talk a little bit about that and where you, where you all are today? Yeah, absolutely. So <clears throat> it's interesting because in my career, um, I've never had the opportunity to build a team literally from ground zero, right? And so um, I inherited two people at Insight when I started um very talented people that, you know, left out of, left about a year after I started, um, one went to a different investment firm, one went to run operations at a startup in New York, um, you know, different points in their career. And so had to start over, right? So the team that we have now 
are all people that I, I started hiring individually that my team, as we brought them on, also hired, right? So some people are ones that I've worked with in the past, which is always great to bring people that you trust, um, that know your operating style, that, and that can bring a whole different level of performance. Um, and the rest are people that we have found, right, out in the industry that are experts in their field um, or people that we are grooming uh, to become experts in their field, right? So typically you inherit an organization and you've got to, you know, take what you have, you know, hire new people, bring people, you know, and that's always a good mix to have as a leader, right? You don't want people who just bring their entire team with you, right? Or um, that don't know how to work with people that they have. But here um, I've been fortunate that, you know, you can build from the ground up, which also leaves no excuse for me as a leader, right? I can't blame any failure uh, on, well, I inherited people right. and it's been taking longer to develop. Like I am fully accountable for every single person that is on my team right now. So the onus is always on me as it always should be with a leader. Um, but yeah, so that's been interesting. So great team um, to answer your question around, you know, how I like to view things. So there's, there's three things that are very important to me as a leader that I always tell the team, right? One is always do good work. That means to me, um, and I call it my A plus B plus C uh, plus D philosophy, right? So to me, when you ask people to do things, um, everybody can produce. If I ask you to do A, anybody should be able to do A, right? And so to me, A is average. So if you're in school, that's like a C because anybody can do A. And so what I want people to think about is like, if I get asked to do A, can I give you A plus B, right? Can I go above and beyond and give you a little bit more than what you asked for? And you want to challenge people to really think and go, B was good, but I want to give you A plus B and C, right? I want to go a little bit more and impress you that I thought two levels down from what you asked me to do. And the real challenge is, can people come back to you and give you D, right? So you asked me for A, and yes, I ran some analysis and did some work to give you B and C, but through that thought process, you asked me to go buy you a burger because you love burgers, but I come back and I'm like, hey, you know what? Try the chicken sandwich. And you're like, I didn't ask for a chicken sandwich. Trust me, this is like the best meal you're going to have, right? And so you want to be able to think outside the box and come back with like very different ways of thinking. And so, you know, challenge the status quo is what I also always tell the team is come up with new and innovative way to do things. We become the challenge. Uh, we be, Sorry, we become the status quo in the future also, right? So it's not challenge somebody else's ideas. It's also challenge our own 12 months from now when what we thought was awesome, maybe it's not as awesome anymore, right? And so that continual do good work. Um, and I strongly believe that if you do that first thing, it will always pay off dividends. Like things will always happen for you. I do believe in destiny, like good work always pays off no matter what. People notice it, people will want to hire you on their teams, people will justify a promotion, et cetera. So that's number one. Number two is, this concept of, uh, you know, what's now in the industry known as, you know, cu providing customer success, right? What, what Nick made at Gainsight sort of started. It's what I call the Disney, Disney magic, right? So Disney's always been a huge proponent of providing their customers, you know, their product is happiness, right? So it's all about how do I ensure that people that come to my theme park, right? If I'm Disney, no matter what they do and what they touch, where they go, they they walk out thinking, I am happy. I'm having an awesome experience, right? So I want the team to do the exact same thing. So whenever they interact with a customer, so our customer for us is a portfolio, right? So it could be the CEO, it could be the CRO, the COO. It could be an internal stakeholder at Insight, right, that they're working with. 
I want that touch point to be optimal. I want people to think, wow, I really enjoy working with that person. They're helpful. They add value, right? They give me the D instead of the A plus B plus C. Um, and so having that white glove service, if you will, I think also pays off dividends because um, it shows that you care, that you that you have empathy uh, and people enjoy working with you, right? And I think it's, you want to have that rapport with someone. You don't want work just to be transactional, if you will. And then the last thing that I've tried to instill is, uh, you know, this concept of having fun at work, right? We spend, you know, let's call it 40, 50 hours a week at work. Granted, now it's COVID, so you're at home, right? But pre-COVID, you're away from, you know, whether you have a spouse or friends or a dog or a cat or a parakeet, like you're spending most of your waking hours during the week away from people that you want to be with, like in your personal life, right? So what I've told people in the past is, Hey, if you're not having fun at work, please go get another job because why would you want to waste 40 to 50 hours of your time being unhappy, right? So it's that concept of, you know, do you enjoy what you do? Can you give people uh, tasks and work that they enjoy? Can you challenge them? Can you give them a long enough leash where they feel that they are contributing, right? Can you create an environment where it's not just 100% business and you can learn about people and they can share about their families and um, I try and build more of a familial culture, I guess, with my team. And there's people that say you shouldn't do that, right? Because, hey, if, you know, push comes to shove and you have to, re you know, reduce headcount or make some tough decisions, it makes it harder. And I would say it actually makes it easier because you have a relationship and I can be more honest and candid versus treating people as uh, transactions. Pablo, I have a bunch of questions on that front, but I'd love to take a big step back, learn a little bit more about how you grew up, the experiences that you had. I know you were born in Mexico and then moved to Texas. Can you talk a little bit about your childhood? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, contrary to popular belief, if you looked at me, right, I was actually born in Mexico. Uh, I was born in a town called uh, Guadalajara. Um, well, actually not actually a town, but second largest city in Mexico. And um, lived there till about I was six years old. Um, my entire family is really Mexican, um, grew up in, you know, Ciudad Juarez in Chihuahua. And, um, we moved back from Guadalajara to El Paso, Texas, which is, you know, the largest border city, um, between the U S and Mexico. And, um, yeah, it was, it was awesome. I grew up in a, you know, El Paso is 75, 80% Hispanic. Uh, so it's very much, you know, might as well be Mexico, which is awesome because I love the culture, love the people, love the food. And uh, grew up with, you know, my mom was a teacher her entire life. Uh, and then I think she was a vice principal for a couple of years. Um, my father was an economist and um, always working for the people in Mexico. So he uh, worked in agriculture and really fought hard for, you know, trade rights for Mexico uh, to ensure that farmers could get their product out of Mexico and that, you know, other countries couldn't dump into Mexico. So um, was always very proud about how he approached things in terms of uh, building, you know, parity for those countries that don't have necessarily the the trading power that the Europe or the U.S. has. Um, but yeah, I had an awesome, awesome childhood. Uh, two brothers, um, the oldest of three. Um, we definitely fought a lot as as boys do growing up. Um, both my brothers are in Texas, and I'm I'm now in you know I've been in New Jersey now for almost 18 years. But uh, my entire family is is in Texas uh, or Mexico on the border. So it's nice when we go home um, that I can basically uh, see all of them there, which is great. Yeah. What? And you are a prideful Texan. 
I would say. You wear it on your sleeve. What makes Texas so unique and special to you? It's Texas. Um, if you're not from Texas, and again, I was born in Mexico, but I would call myself a Texan uh, before anything else. Uh, I don't know. You got to go to Texas to experience it. Um, I know you're a big Texas Longhorn fan and uh, it's your favorite team, Jay Mars. But um, it's, uh, I don't know, Texas is unique. It is, you know, it was the only state in the union that actually was a country, right, for a certain amount of time. And I think people have a sense of pride because of that. It's also, you know, a large state. Everything is bigger in Texas. Um, I don't know. It's a, It's definitely, it brings people closer together um, more so than other states. I don't think any, I don't, I've never seen another state that's proud of their flag. Like nobody in New Jersey, I don't even know what the New Jersey state flag is, um, much less what I fly it at my house, but I do, I do fly my Texas state flag when, uh, you know, the Longhorns are playing on the weekend. So I don't know, there's just something about the energy in Texas that, uh, that I love and the people love. Well, and people are moving all over the place from all over the country there too. I mean, it's especially places like Austin, which is where uh, you went to university of Texas. I know it's been a long slog of losing and, and potential misery over the last couple of decades. But what, what did you, what did you study at UT? Yeah. So I went to UT. Uh, so I, I, pl- I applied to two schools. I went to, I applied to NYU in Texas and I got into both for undergrad and I could not afford NYU remotely. So I went to Texas, which at the time, believe it or not, was, uh, I think, I think I paid like $1,200 a semester, uh, back then in uh, 95, if that tells you how old I am. Um, but yeah, I, I, uh, I always wanted to do business. I didn't know what, and at the time management information systems was the hottest thing in 95. Um, I didn't really know what management information systems was, but I was really good at computers because I worked in high school at an economic consulting firm after, you know, I went to school, you know, 6am to 12pm. And then I went to go work from one to six and they had computers at the time. And again, this is pre-internet, right? So I learned, how to use Excel and 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 PowerPoint at the time, which was like it was so basic back then. And so when I went to school, I was like, oh, I'm really good at computers. Let me learn how to code and stuff. And so I wasn't the best coder, um, but I loved building and solving, you know, problems by you know coding in VBA. Um, and so yeah, I, I did I did that, and I minored in international economics because my dad was an economist, so I always really enjoyed that. Um, and I graduated in '99 at the peak of the dot-com bubble, literally before the bubble was bursting, right? And um, again, with an MIS major at the time, there were only, I'm going to butcher this, but I think it was like, we we had 71 people in my class that were graduating with MIS majors. And I think there were 500 job offers. So like there weren't even enough people at that time to fill all the jobs. And so everybody with that major was taking high profile jobs with like the big consulting firms or, you know, you know, large companies at the time coding. And uh, I had a job to work in Dallas, 5 p.m. to 5 a.m., three days a week, making 52K, which, by the way, at that time was a lot of money. Everybody else was making like 35, 37K. But the MIS kids were making the 50s. And I was like, wow, 5 p.m. to 5 a.m. This is awesome. It's only three days a week. Times are weird, but, you know, this sounds great. And I went to interview and they take me into the basement of this building and they give me this North Face jacket and they're like, hey, it's really cold. You got to wear this jacket. This was like in the summer, by the way, like this is June. And I'm like, it's freezing down here and it's a bunch of servers. 
So imagine like the matrix, if you've seen the matrix with the code and stuff, it's all these servers, there's humming. I literally had a headache 20 minutes in and they're like, so this is your station. You're going to sit here. And I'm like, well, where's, where's the team? And they're like, no, this is you. This is you 5 PM to 5 AM. If you see blinking lights, that means there's an issue with the code and you are tier one support. You got to try and fix it. And if you can't fix it, here's the phone, you call it and somebody else will try to fix it. That's it. And I was like, all right. <laughs> I was like, this is not me. Like I need people to talk to. I'm not going to sit here, you know, 12 hours a day, only for three days, no matter how sexy that might've sounded. And so I didn't take the job. I didn't take the job and I didn't have a job for three months because that's the only job I could find is like a coding job. And I was like, that is not what I wanted to do. So um, I spent three months on monster.com, which was, you know, there was no LinkedIn back then. So there was monster and a couple of other sites where you could look for jobs. There was a consulting firm out of New York called the Alexander group. They're sort of the, a boutique sales and marketing effectiveness firm. They're, you know, number one firm in that space. And they were opening up an office in Austin and believe it or not, they needed an analyst that was really good at crunching numbers in Excel and could build models. And I was like, wow, I can do all that. But it's like, you know, sales and marketing. I was like, I didn't know anything about sales and marketing. So I was like, I don't know if I can do this job. Um, but I applied and I was like, let's see if they call me back. Right. So they called me back and I went to interview and I was like, look, I don't know sales and marketing, but I can do all these other things that are on the job. So I'm concerned I may not be a good fit. And my boss said, or my boss to be said, I'll teach you everything you need to know about sales and marketing. But if you can crunch numbers, and work in PowerPoint and build me some models, then we'll figure it out. And so I took that job and that started my career in sort of the sales and marketing space. That's really interesting. I want to back up a little bit and correct me if this is wrong, but I believe after you graduated, maybe it was in that three month time period, you actually backpacked across Europe for a time. That seemed to be a really good experience for you. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, good good point. I totally forgot about that. So yeah, so I graduated and again, nobody started their jobs for a couple of months. Um, and I was worried because I, I told you, I, I went into that North Face jacket downstairs, like fridge, and I didn't take a job. And my friends and I had been planning a trip to, you know, backpack across Europe for, you know, four to six weeks. You know, I did not come from a family that had, you know, a lot of money um, or any money at all. Right. And so I didn't have any money to my name. I had worked my entire, all four years in college, I had worked, right? So I had saved up a little bit of money and I started to think, crap, I don't have a job. I'm going to go to Europe. I don't even know if I have enough money to go around Europe, right? Should I do this? And I did it, right? Because I thought, when else am I going to do this? Right? And we have one friend uh, who chose not to go because, you know, he's more prudent with his money. And um, it's funny, he said like, you know, we should really save our money and we'll, we'll do this when we're in our 40s do it right. We'll go stay at hotels and stuff. And, you know, when you're, when you're 21, you're thinking, I'm not waiting 20 years for this opportunity. Right. And like, now looking back, I'm like, you know, I'm in my forties now. I'm like, do you really think I'm going to go take six weeks off having kids and a wife to hang out with six guys backpacking across Europe? Right. Never. Um, so I'm glad I did it. Right. And we went and it was one of the best experiences ever. Right. Um, traveling to different cities, sleeping on the floors of trains, you know, barely getting by eating, you know, baguettes and wine, um, you know, seeing bullfights in Madrid at the time. And I know that might sound gory, but like, you know, experiencing something that's important for that culture um, and seeing it live. Right. 
um, you know, meeting different people in one city and then running into them into a different city. It's something that I hope my kids get to do and would highly recommend other kids get to do because it's a way to really experience the world, taking trains here or there, missing trains. One time we got to Italy and like there were no hostels open and we didn't know where we were going to sleep. We ended up sleeping in a church like the the priest led us in the church and and, uh, you know, gave us like uh, two bunks to sleep in. And so that was a great experience. I learned a lot about myself, uh, my friends. uh, And now, you know, with work, I've had the opportunity with every job I've had to also travel all over the world. Right. So I've been able to go back to some of those places and actually see things that I couldn't afford or experience things and eat food that I didn't get to eat when I was there. But um, yeah, great experience. During that time period, there was a, I think there's a, some kind of quote from you around a penny saved is a penny earned. And I think this goes back to the, your friend not going on the trip, but it seems like the forming memories that you'll never forget again. Yeah. So, you know, people say like a penny saved is a penny earned, right? So I have a very different philosophy. So my viewpoint was, wasn't, hey, let me go blow everything I have on on Europe. And by the way, I didn't have much, right? I actually paid for most of it on a credit card and said, I'll, I'll pay for this later. I'd rather have the experience than end up with a couple of extra dollars in the bank, right? Because you're never going to get that experience back, whether it's that trip or whether it's, you know, upgrading my son's bike and, you know, spending the extra hundred dollars to buy a $600 bike versus a $500 bike. I mean, come on, a hundred dollars amortized that over three years, he's going to use it. It's pennies on the dollar every month. Right. So being too frugal for me is always, you know, I didn't come from money. So it's, it's, in, it's just interesting um, to see, you know, everybody's got their own viewpoint, but um, I wish my friend would have come with us because um, of all the people that didn't come, he had the most money. Um, and now I'll never get a chance to experience that. Right. So what I would tell people is, you know, live life to the fullest. Um, it doesn't mean squander, uh, your money and be financially irresponsible, but, uh, you're not going to take it with you when you die, live life. Yeah. And I think the one thing I've observed with you is grow up in Texas. This, this was, you're very just open-minded to be, to just get to the point. And, and you, I imagine hang out at work with a lot of people who, aren't familiar with Texas and that culture and you just constantly bring your most authentic self to work and yet you're really open-minded and sort of one of those people that can navigate really different kinds of people is that something that just comes naturally to you is it something you learn through the years and is it something you're you're conscious of maybe compared to someone else it's good it's a good question i'm not sure where i picked it up i mean i know my mom's always been very open-minded, right? And she's always said, like, respect everybody and their ideas. Everybody's different and unique. Um, and I think I've always worked with people and had good leaders who were open-minded. So maybe I picked, I picked it up from, you know, my mom or different leaders. But I think I've always also just realized that people have different viewpoints and it's okay for that, right? And... I've always tried to be authentic and not hide who I am also for fear that people may or may not uh, appreciate um, who I am, right? Obviously, in today's world, you have to be you know, more sensitive to how things are perceived, but that doesn't mean I'm going to change who I am, right? So for example, um, I grew up in Texas and I grew up around um, weapons and guns, right? And we used to go shooting with my dad in the desert every weekend. And 
Um, I've done that everywhere I moved in Austin. You know, I met my wife in Georgia. We live now in New Jersey, which has some of the tightest gun laws in the country, right? And I've adjusted to that, and that's okay. And I definitely um, respect that. And you know, not everybody is a proponent of guns for different reasons, and that's okay, right? And I hope that people understand that I like to shoot guns because it's a sport and it's fun. And um, if you want to judge me for that, that's also okay, right? Um, but I'm also not going to hide who I am for fear of retribution. So, got it. Thanks for sharing that. Let's move along in your career. I know that you had, I think it was after the Alexander Group, was it Avia? Is Did I get that Avaya. right? But, Avaya. But you, thank you. So you were working on an integration there, and I think that's where you picked up a pretty important mentor in Steve. And then your Nortel Enterprise integration was a pretty important moment in your career, right? Yeah. So I did consulting for four years, and that was awesome, right? And then, you know, traveling five days a week is awesome when you're 21 years old to 24 because you have nothing else to do. So who cares, right? Like I, sometimes I wouldn't come home for four weeks at a time because I could just sleep somewhere else and stay there because it was cheaper than coming back. Right. But that gets old, right? Some, at least for me, right. Some people continue to do it and that's okay. But for me, it got old. And so I went to a company called Avaya because somebody that, um, where I worked, the Alexander group had gone there and they pulled me in, um, and said, Hey, there's a lot of opportunity here. Right. And so, I was there for eight years and the eight years that I was there were very challenging, right? So um, Avaya was not growing well, it was very challenged, um, but there were a lot of amazing people and that was, you know, my resiliency and aptitude for operational excellence all happened in those eight years, right? I always think that if you've only worked in companies where everything's always growth, growth, growth and everything's great, that's awesome, but when you know, excuse my French, when shit hits the fan, it's hard for those people because they don't know what it's like on the other side, right? And I only grew up at Avaya knowing what it was like on the other side, right? And so it was tough. Yeah, we, you know, we were a public company and then we got bought by Silver Lake and TPG. So, you know, now being in the private equity space, like I got to experience what it was like getting bought and working with the PE guys on changing the company, right? And they relied a lot on our team to, to make some of those changes. Um, you know, leadership teams came in and out. And then, you know, after the acquisition, um, Avaya bought the enterprise business of Nortel, right? So um, for those of you that aren't, aren't aware, Avaya is a voice, voice over IP company. Nortel was one of the largest players in that space, uh, networks and voice over IP, telephony. Yeah, we bought, it was a billion dollar acquisition. And I was, I would, I would, I would say I was early in my career uh, in operations, right? I had started my career doing sales compensation only. And then I had transitioned to operations just given my engagement with the sales leaders. And when we bought Nortel, um, my boss at the time offered that I would lead the integration for all of sales. And my peers that were leading the integrations for services for HR were all seasoned vice presidents. I, I was like a director at the time, right? I wasn't even a senior director in corporate America. So these are corporate vice presidents with, you know, several hundred people under them, multiple years of uh, executive presence. And I thought, there's no way I can do this, right? Like you're asking me to go integrate a thousand people in sales across the across the world, right? We were, we were flying to Singapore, to Frankfurt, to uh, Latin America, and then the teams in New York. And I've got to go with these other executives and somehow integrate this. And they put a lot of faith in me. Um, and I got a lot of coaching and the expectation was like, Hey, you're in charge, go figure it out. Right. So it really 
challenged me and there were times I thought there's no way I can do this. Um, but it happened. And luckily I was paired up um, with somebody from Deloitte who I still keep in contact now. Like each of us was paired up with somebody from Deloitte. Um, and I learned a lot from that person also, but it did make me who I, th who I am today, I think. So um, my boss coached me a lot, um, the head of sales. Um, and then I got coaching from another mentor of mine, Steve, who's been a mentor my entire career, who is really phenomenal in terms of coaching on, you know, how to manage upwards, how to deal with difficult situations, how to navigate the political landscape. Yeah, it was great. I mean, making tough decisions, right? You're integrating two organizations, like who gets to go where and what's the strategy for the new commercial team and how do you segment customers and how do you prioritize, you know, one vertical versus another and which regions are going to grow. All the things I'm advising now that I've picked up in other jobs as well, I started to learn during that process. Yeah, that's really interesting. When, I'd love to unpack a little bit of the career advice you got at that point. Maybe we could start with managing up because I, it's a really important skill and I see people that are early on in their careers really struggle with it where maybe you're meeting with an executive and you're not prepared or things like that, or you're not proactively communicating the work that you're doing, stuff like that. Talk a little bit about that broadly, but also maybe, you know, some of the other useful advice you got there that might be helpful to the listener. Yeah. And it's interesting because it's, it's, it's sales 101 basically, right? So like, it's no different than when you teach a rep, when you're going to go sell and you're preparing to talk to, you know, if it's enterprise sales and you're talking to the C-suite or it's mid-market SMB sales and it's one buyer, one or two people, you have to prepare, right? You have to prepare for the meeting and understand who am I talking to, right? What What's important to them? What am I trying to convey? What am I trying to accomplish? Do they know what the meeting is for, right? Like, have I told them not just I know and they're not showing up prepared? Then it's thinking about, okay, well, what's what like what is my strategy during the meeting and what outcomes do I want to get across and how do I convey that? And then after the meeting, what do I do, right? How do I follow up, stay engaged if there's action items, et cetera, right? So it's the whole life cycle of engaging with someone. So a lot of coaching, you know, for, for upward um, management, whether it's your, your boss or an executive, executives operate at a very different level, right? They don't have 30 minutes to chit chat and, and go deep, right? And sometimes people try and show up with like, you know, Excel files and all this, and you've got to kick it up a level, right? Because you've got to get to the so what, right? Like, what do you need from me if I'm an executive? Are you asking me to make a decision? Are you asking for input? Or is this just informative because three weeks ago I asked you to give me an update, right? Like, I want to know that before you come in and talk to me, right? So we try to, we try to teach people that also is like, back to preparing for the meeting, like understand what the purpose of the meeting is. And do you need the meeting? Could you accomplish the same thing in an email, et cetera, right? So, so that's also helped. Um, a lot of the coaching also has been around um, how to get decisions made in an organization, right? And this is sort of following with, you know, Sun Tzu's art of war, right? Um, you know, Sun Tzu has this whole philosophy on, you know, flanking your opponent. And so not to make it negative, right? But decisions don't get made by one person right? Executives or the CEO or the leader looks to their team to make decisions, right? That's why in sales, you always teach, you know, the reps uh, or in customer success that you've got to have multiple relationships with different people in the organization that are influencers, right? That are going to be your champions that can help you get the decision maker or the budget owner to agree to whatever you want. It's the same thing in personal relationships. It's 
if you want your, you know, you're trying to convince your boss for something, is that boss going to go ask somebody else? Like, hey, I talked to Jonathan Mars here. He has this idea. What do you think? Oh, yeah. I also talked to Jonathan last week. I actually love this. You know, he actually pitched it to me. I'm in alignment. Oh, okay, cool. Let's try it. Right. If you're not, if you're not seeding, if you will, and softening the beach um, and just trying to tackle it like head on versus flanking, you're not going to be successful. So those, those are some of the things that, um, that I learned on. And, and also Steve, like the best advice that Steve also gave me was never run, never run from something, always run to something. Right. And so I've, I've shared that with my team when they're thinking, you know, about changing jobs, whether it's internally, they want to go from one team or another, like, Hey, I, you know, I hate my boss or I hate the team. I'm, I'm not really happy. Uh, I just want to get out of here. Right. So you're, you're running from something, right. People think that the grass is greener somewhere else. It's not, it's the exact same color. Uh, if not, it's worse, right. You, you, it's just perception wise. It's the same issues everywhere. It's just different, right. It's, it's how you approach it that really matters. Right. And so what I've told people always is, same thing. Make sure you're running to something that you think is you're going to, again, going back to my three principles, right? Do you think you're going to be happy and have fun there and you're going to learn and be able to grow and work with people that make you stronger and you can make them stronger as well? Yeah. And I, I use that with my team when they're thinking about making a move internally or out of the business entirely. I want to move on, Pablo, to a, a decision point in your, your life where I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, you were looking at ADP and Microsoft. And I'd love to hear your thought process and how you went about it and ultimately what you chose. Yeah, that's a, that's a good one. Um, so again, power of LinkedIn, right? So I was in California at my in-laws and I got a LinkedIn request, same day, different times from both ADP and Microsoft. Same role, right? ADP um, you know, Fortune 250 company, largest human capital firm in the world. They pay one, one in six people. They were looking for someone to come in and build out a global sales compensation function, right? Um, at the time, they had 12 business units. Everything was disparate. And Microsoft, uh, much larger company, I think, you know, ADP had 8,000 salespeople. Microsoft had 20,000 at the time, um, was looking for someone to also run global sales compensation for, for their entire team. And, you know, on paper, my initial thought was, Oh, Microsoft, right? That's that's sexy. It's tech, uh, ADP, it's HR. Like, am I really going to like that? And I don't know anything about HR. Microsoft, like, oh, I, I use Microsoft products all the time, right? I went through both interviews. The opportunity ADP was awesome. The sales culture was amazing. It's actually one of the strongest sales cultures out of any Fortune 1000 company. Great leadership, great way of promoting from within, but they lacked a lot of things that, you know, would inhibit them from maybe continuing to scale to the next level, right? And so I saw a lot of opportunity to come in there, buy in from the CEO, the, the SVP of sales to, you know, start working with them on introducing some different ways of doing things. And at Microsoft, loved the interview process, right? It, it is intense. There's books on, you know, uh, there's a book called How to Move Mount Fuji, which is all about the questions that Microsoft asked. And while they're unconventional, right, a lot of companies have, 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 have used those, right? So, um, and it was interesting. What was weird and caught me off guard was the culture was very different, right? And these were the Balmer days. After doing an interview with one of the VPs, he called me offline and goes, dude, you don't want to take this job. I was like, what do you mean? He's like, trust me, you don't want to come here. It's a dog eat dog world. Everybody's like fighting and jockeying for positions. It's in your better interest not to take it. So my first thought was like, is this person trying to interview for the job I'm interviewing for? And so he's like trying to like 
sabotage me. So I talked to another person and I, and I got the sense what I was like, maybe this isn't the place I want to work at, right? While it seemed cool on paper and I could talk about it at a barbecue, my thought was like, who cares? It doesn't sound like I'd be happy. And, and so I chose the ADP job and I'm so glad I did because I learned a lot there. I moved into a very large role running all of operations. You know, it was very challenging coming in as an outsider to ADP because it's a very ingrained culture. So I'll say that I also learned how not to do things. I think I came in, you know, pistols blazing, trying to change things too quickly in an organization that probably needed some time, right? It needed some more marinating and I didn't allow it time to marinate. So I learned there, but it was an awesome, an awesome time in my career. And I'm glad I went there over Microsoft and I would, I would do the same thing again. Yeah. That's a great story. Pablo, I know you've got a hard stop. So I'm going to start asking the, the final few questions and I want to pivot. I mean, you, you are a guy with a lot of hobbies. You seem to really love work. I'd, I'd love to unpack, like, what are some of your hobbies? You, you mentioned target practice and shooting. And how, how do those hobbies, do they help you perform better at work? And wh- how do you think about work-life balance if, if it is such a thing at this point? Yeah. So one, you know, not necessarily a hobby per se, but I love spending time with my family, right? So I've got two kids and a wonderful wife who, you know, I, I wouldn't be where I am right now in my career if I did not have somebody that could support me like my wife does. So I do want to thank her. So hobby number one is spending time with them, right? And I try my best. I've, I've never, I've, I haven't always been the best father in terms of being there, right? So I traveled a lot early on when the kids were younger, spent a lot of time in Singapore and Frankfurt and then in Europe um, and other places. And so, you know, my kids learned to, like they got potty trained alone with my wife while I wasn't there. But so my priority is always uh, my my kids and my wife uh, in terms of the weekends. But hobbies, first and foremost, is Texas. So I live and breathe everything Texas, uh, Texas Longhorns. And for those of you that know me, I've watched women's softball national championship at a wedding and people are like, how are you watching softball? I'm like, Texas is playing. I don't, I don't care. Right. I'll watch, I'll watch swimming and diving. Yes. We're not having an awesome year this year, but there are 20 other sports that I can watch. I'll watch Texas ping pong if I have to. So that is my number one hobby. Uh, I love the mountain bike. I gave that up for about eight years while the kids were growing up because, you know, when your kids are young, you spend all your time with them because that's the time you have. Um, and I glad I, I'm glad I did that because now that they're older, like they want their free time. So advice for all you young parents, like zero to 12, give it your all because like once they turn into teenagers, you know, they want their freedom and you think you're going to hold on to them, but like they want their friends, right? So you don't want to miss that time. But now my kids go mountain biking with me, right? So it's awesome that my hobby now that I've picked back up um, and I'm actually training with some friends to go to Moab uh, in the spring, which is the Mecca of mountain biking. So I'm trying to mountain bike every day um, during the week and then on the weekends with my kids. And then my the hobby I picked up most recently, Jay Mars, is uh, the last couple of years is smoking uh, and not smoking cigars or weed, um, smoking meat. Um, so I bought a smoker. I try and smoke, I don't know, three, four times a week uh, during the week, definitely on the weekends. Um, my wife hates the smell of the smoke, so I actually love it. Um, but the kids... And her really enjoy, you know, whether we're making ribs or chicken or smoked salmon, um, it's something that I really enjoy and it helps me, uh, you know, decompress after work. Um, it also helps me, you know, I love doing calls when I'm outside, you know, changing the wood and, and, and changing the meat. It gives me time to, to do two things at once. Um, so, yeah, so that's sort of, you know, some of the hobbies I have. And definitely, you know, I met my wife playing tennis when we, when we met in Atlanta 
And we're, I'm picking that back up now that, you know, I've got a little bit more time since the kids don't want to spend every day with my wife and I. So I'll mountain bike in the morning and then she and I will play tennis. So we try and do that. And then answer to answer your question on work-life balance. So, you know, people, everybody has an opinion, right? And some people think like, Hey, you've got to have balance and you shouldn't do this and you should stop work here. And, you know, you should cut it off. I I think it depends. Like I actually don't believe in that. I think work-life balance is what you make of it. I get a lot of energy from work. I love, again, going back to like, if I'm having fun at work, right? I love having discussions with CEOs, with CROs on how to help them scale their business. I love talking to my peers at Insight on how we're transforming the industry. I love developing the people that I work with, right? And I get a lot of energy from that. So while I like to be on all the time and I'm constantly learning, you know, on the weekends, I'm thinking about how to do something differently. And, you know, sometimes there's friction with the family. It's like, hey, you never turn off, but I never get, I never let it get to the point where it's uh, destructive, but that gives me energy and my family knows that, right? And it makes me who I am and it makes me stronger. And, and I always try and make sure that I am available uh, for the kids, right? Now, when they have, you know, pre-COVID, when they had sporting events, I would try to work from home so I could go to it, right? Now with COVID, hey, it's awesome because I get to have, you know, I see them in the morning, I see them during lunch and we have dinner together. Um, so it's actually been great from a, from a familial perspective. Um, but yeah, I don't, I, I don't believe in the work-life balance as a person. Like I will respect it as a leader. Like if somebody on my team's like, Hey, I can only do X to Y that that's fine. Right. Like what I tell my team is you're asked to do something. I honestly don't care when you do it. Right. Like as long as you overachieve and give me the A plus B plus C plus D and give me the Disney magic. If that's if you like to work from midnight to 4 a.m. and then a little hours during the day and that doesn't disrupt your customers or internal stakeholders, I don't really care. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. And thanks for getting me hooked on smoking meat. You've been a great coach out of the blocks here. And I didn't even go to Auburn, but as you know, my wife did. And man, I was watching Auburn volleyball the other day. It's like I love Southern football. And yeah. just, it's, it's just if there's a ball moving around and an Auburn logo, I'm, I'm in, man. Yeah. Um, it, uh, it brings people together. And the one thing there, right. That is, you know, to, to, to go back to managing teams and leaders, right. So you've got to make sure that, you know, sports is a very bro-ish, um, you know, environment. Right. And so at an, at Nexus, um, the startup that I came from before I came to Insight, you know, the team was 65% women. Here at Insight, you know, the team we've built were 55% women on my team, right? And and my boss's team on site is also predominantly women. I think it's 55, almost 60%. While sports are important to me, right? Um, you want to make sure you bring other people along and what's important to them, right? And there are definitely some women that love sports, but you don't want to make it all about sports. You, you want to make it about other things that people can relate to, whether it's, uh, you know, the orchestra or other team events. So there's plenty of things that are in Texas that are not sports also. So people love food. So I always talk about barbecue. Right. And I think it goes back to what you were saying about caring about the people you work with and building a tight team. Cause I find that I get interested in things that I know my team is, is interested about. And I sort of ask them questions about their hobby. And I often find myself thinking about that stuff and then bringing it to one-on-ones and things like that. Yeah, absolutely. So Pablo, final question. You've given a lot of wisdom and I, I feel like at some point we'll have to do a part two because we didn't even get to a lot of stuff. But whether you're 25, 55, no matter where you are in your career, what's the one thing you would want people to walk away from this conversation with and think about applying to their own career? 
best advice I can give is like find find a job in a career where you can have fun, but you also can be with a team of people that are helping you grow both professionally, I guess individually, but where you can also contribute, right? I, I think that is very, very important because I've seen when you can build, when you as a leader can build that culture, people can join a culture on that team, right? But also it's not just, you know, it's not just, you know, your team, but it's like the team above you or the company, Um there's more energy and people want to do more, right? And they want to be creative. So I strongly believe that you shouldn't have to ask your team to go above and beyond. I love to see when people do things that are completely unexpected because they want to do it and they come back with amazing ideas or they, you know, put in the extra time because they want to, you know, overachieve, not just for the sake of overachieving, because it's good for them. It's good for the team. It's good for the organization. Um, so try and find that, right? Because again, if you can find that, then work becomes, I mean, it's always work, right? We all, I mean, I'm sure people would all just want to retire and just do nothing, but I don't know if I would, right? Like if I had all the money in the world, I think I'd still want to work and do something because it, you know, it makes you, it keeps the brain fresh and it makes you think. And so try and find that magic in a, in a company, in a team, in a leader, or if you're the leader, try and build that for your team because it makes a huge difference. Pablo, thank you for that. If someone wanted to reach out to you and connect, where, where would the best place to be? Yeah, they can find you on the internet. Always welcome to find me on LinkedIn. I learned social selling at ADP. So you'll see me posting a lot of articles about sales or, or things that Insight's doing or things that are exciting. So I'm very active there. And uh, yeah, people are welcome to ping me. Always happy to, to give advice, talk to people, or also learn something from anybody else. Pablo Dominguez, thank you so much for being on Career Corner. I really appreciate it. Hook'em horns. Hello there. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed my chat with Pablo. If you are enjoying Career Corner, I'd be honored if you subscribed and shared with your friends and family. If you have thoughts on how to improve it, feel free to reach out to me via LinkedIn or Twitter, which you can find in the show notes. Have a great day.